so if you are part of the Reggae Fam, you might remember um, that at the start of this series uh, in One Peter Bodybuilding, um, I was talking to you about my dodgy shoulder. Um, that wasn't doing very well, and explaining that the physio said, actually, it's not really about my shoulder, it's about my back, and I needed to, to strengthen my back and do some exercises and all that kind of thing, which is going okay, by the way, but I'm still going to use the shoulder as an excuse if I lose at tennis this week as we go, uh, you know, don't tell the kids. Um, the series, though, is essentially about growing core strength, isn't it? It's about building muscle, it's about growing foundations, it's about allowing God to build us, his body, growing stronger. And I hope that that is happening. I'm not going to review particularly where we've been, but let's keep reflecting on it. But it, it turns out that um, I'm clearly in the grip of an of a extended midlife crisis because um, I found myself again at the beginning of the week signing up for next year's London Marathon again. I have no idea why. I, I probably checked my bank account and couldn't afford a Porsche. So um, it's the only alternative, isn't it? If you can't buy a Porsche and you're having a midlife crisis, you've got to, you've got, you've got to run the marathon. So I'm doing that again. So as I was plodding around uh, Presbury, I'd uh, kind of begun training. Training might be uh, overstating the case. But as I was plodding around the streets of Presbury um, last week, this week, just a, just a little bit, beginning to uh, creak my muscles again, I have felt a ho little Holy Spirit nudge, I think, to begin this message with just a little bit of a broader reminder about the business of being built up, growing, changing as God's people, before we then apply that to a particular situation in the book, in the letter that we're looking at in Peter. And going back to my running, there are three things involved, I think, in the running enterprise, the doing the marathon thing for me. Motivation, inspiration, perspiration. And I just felt God highlighting those just a little bit. I'm motivated, as it happens, by a desire for change. In that particular case, physically, I want to be a little bit leaner, a little bit fitter, a little bit stronger, so that the temple, that is, the temple of the Holy Spirit that is my body lasts me another few years, um, having reached the stage of life that I have. That's my motive. Running the marathon just happens to be a particular kind of target or, or challenge that I need that will um, head towards that bigger objective. I need inspiration along the way, for sure. Lots of it, in all kinds of different ways. I need the encouragement of people. Uh, I need the, the, the memory of two years ago when I did run the marathon, just about made it. Uh, I need good advice, I need good equipment, I need great worship music to listen to as I plod the streets of Presbury and elsewhere. Uh, I need the example, I need the companionship sometimes of others, and certainly in the race itself, those running alongside me. So there's a, there's a bunch of stuff around inspiration. And then frankly, perspiration, obviously. Um, training and running a long way for a long period of time is a sweaty old business. And uh, it needs, frankly, just hard work. It needs some choices. It needs some habits that build up over a period of time. Combination of motivation, inspiration, perspiration. But that combination, barring injury, will mean that I will change. This Adonis body will change. I will get a little bit leaner, a little bit fitter, a little bit stronger. Body building, building the body, these encouragements, these exhortations from Peter, and don't you love them, actually, as challenging as they are in this book and elsewhere in the New Testament. They're challenges for us to grow, to change in your, my faith, in your obedience, in your levels of trust in your capacity to love, in your character, in your fruitfulness, sometimes growing through pain. Hills will speak about that last week. But growing through pain, not getting stuck or going backwards in pain. Transformation through trouble was one of her lines. In growing in exercising the gifts of the Spirit, growing in effective witness, 
so that through God's church, the world gets changed, growing. We're used to the metaphor, but it's so important from time to time just to take stock. Is that happening? Am I changing? Because when we talk about change, so often we talk about things that are external to our world rather than internal to our hearts. It takes motivation, it takes inspiration, it takes perspiration, it takes that combination, or, or if I may, just a shorthand for, for some H's. Being hungry, we need hunger, because not a lot happens unless we want something to happen in that way. It, ta- it needs the Holy Spirit, our inspiration, we'll come back to that. It, it requires hard work. Hunger, Holy Spirit, hard work. And frankly, one without the others won't work, will it? In my marathon analogy, I might, if, if I don't really want to do it, if I'm not motivated enough for change, frankly, the effort will not be worth it and I'll fall at the first hurdle. Without some encouragement, without regular help, without equipping, without the necessary tools for the job, I will give up, I won't make it. Without hard work, it will just remain a fantasy. I have these sort of wish fulfillment things going on about running the marathon, but I won't actually get there unless I do some hard work. So it needs all of them. Hunger, Holy Spirit, hard work, motivation, inspiration, perspiration. So the question Peter was posing, I think, or one of them to those first century followers in in Turkey, and I think he's posing the same one again because God speaks similar things to us and asks similar questions to 21st century people in Cheltenham, in Trinity today, is are you changing? And how do those three factors play out in your life at the moment? Where is motivation? Where is inspiration? Where is perspiration? Or if you like, where's, what's the place of hunger? What's the place of the Holy Spirit and how you're doing with hard work? And again, it's not just about circumstances. Please, I'm not talking about change. When we think of change, it's not your job and it's not what's going on in your family. It's not your changing opinions about things. It's not your changing weight, maybe. Uh, we're talking about internals. We're talking about heart, aren't we? Is your generosity changing? Is my thankfulness growing? How joyful I am, how peaceful I feel, how forgiving I am. What is your relationship with Jesus looking like? Is it growing? Is it changing? How are we growing up in God? Growing older is sadly obligatory and mandatory. Growing up, growing in maturity, growing more like Jesus, no, that's a choice. That is absolutely not automatic. Requires hunger, Holy Spirit, hard work. How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, only one, but does the light bulb want to be changed? It's where we start, isn't it? It really is. Not a lot happens unless we want it to. God doesn't force himself on us. If you don't want your heart to change, guess what? It won't. So there's some stuff around motivation there, examining our our hearts, allowing God to. All kinds of things could motivate. That's not what the point of the talk is, but hunger, let's identify, is fundamental. Holy Spirit, so easy to imagine that we can change and we can do the things that we want to do and we can get there without what God says is utterly essential. Without me, do you remember Jesus saying, do you remember how much we, we can achieve without him, without his Holy Spirit? Do you remember that bit in John? Do you remember that in John 15? How much can we achieve without him, without the Holy Spirit? Much as the devil says, no, 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 just, just you, you're fine, work hard. The answer is nothing, nothing. No lasting legacy of goodness, no lasting transformation of our hearts without the presence and power of God through his spirit interacting with ours. The devil, I think it's one of the biggest lies of the devil, especially to us in educated, qualified, skillful 21st century Cheltenham, that we can do it by ourselves. It's one of his effective lies. And then hard work. 
Actually, the decisions, the choices, the habits we form, the price we'll pay to do those things, to listen to Jesus, to trust him, to obey him. Hunger, Holy Spirit, hard work, all three needed. And Peter, like Paul, is incredibly passionate. I love, there's, something, there's much that we love about Peter, don't we? I don't know how you imagine him, but for sure passion will be one of those qualities I think we associate with, with him. And I think he brings this passion to bear as he writes to this group of followers, as God wants to encourage us through the letter today, about change, about not staying stuck, about growing, about keeping going, about allowing God to build these muscles in our core so that we are effective, so that we are, for, for our own sake, as well as for uh, the sake of the world that needs a church that's on form. So don't get stuck. He wants us to live to the max. And he draws our attention this morning, as we come to this morning, to something, perhaps one of the biggest things that is a blockage to us growing. One of the things that just gets in the way all the time with every human being, actually, let alone those who call themselves followers of Jesus. And uh, we're going to read a few verses. If you want to find 1 Peter chapter 5, first six verses are going to come up on the screen. Thanks, Ed. I'm going to read these through. You'll be able to identify what the blockage is, even if the word isn't exactly mentioned here. Plenty of other places where it is. But this reads like this. 1 Peter 5, first six verses. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. One of the major blockages, title of this talk, if you wanted one, might be um, eat humble pie or eat more humble pie or something like that. A summary, if you need a summary, you can only remember four words today, would be this. Pride, bad. <laughs> Humility, good. Sorry for being basic, but sometimes we need basic, don't we? Pride, bad. Humility, good. The main difference between you and God is that God doesn't think that he's you. This sin of pride, and again, it's not all about pride this morning, but we've got to capture this because it's part of the hunger, it's part of the motivation, it's part of the grappling with something that I want to change. The sin of pride underlies every other sin, doesn't it? You ever clock that? Far from being um, a source of strength, as some might think of pride, it's so profoundly weak and destructive. The inclination of my heart, and actually yours, is that thing called pride, the thing with I in the middle. You know that thing, pride, it's, it's the I in the middle of the word, just as I is always in the middle of sin. Sadly, as I was preparing this, I realized that I is in the middle of Tim as well, but maybe that's... <laughs> Speaking, it's chastening, it's challenging. So putting I in the middle, isn't it? That's the, 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 essentially what pride's all about. And then all of the weakness and all of the dysfunction and all of the brokenness that then flows 
from that place. It's the oldest sin in the book. Eve falls for the snake's temptation. Why? Because the snake says, if you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened, Genesis 3, and what? You will be like God. Right there. It's the oldest temptation and still the biggest. And in our own way, it's what we've been trying to do ever since, isn't it? Keep ourselves in the middle. Take God's place in our hearts. Our unredeemed nature, our inheritance from Adam and Eve. We love the idea of the world revolving around I, just as those words do me, my needs, my comfort, my security, my ambitions, my dreams, my stuff. Yeah, maybe reaching out to others from time to time, but essentially only to see how that benefits me. That's our unredeemed selfish nature. Pride is a many-headed monster, but its focus is always self. It appears in many guises, doesn't it? Again, we, we don't need too much of a persuading about that, but let's clock it again. It does. It's a many-headed monster. We might not think of ourselves as proud, proud, proud because that, that bit of pride we seem to have done okay about, but what, bit of that, what about that bit? Um, am I addicted to mirrors? Our 17-year-old is learning to drive at the moment. Being addicted to mirrors when you're learning to, to drive is a, is a good thing, but most of the time it's a vain thing. Subtle addiction to mirrors, watch out. I might be stubborn. Not very open to correction, that's a pride thing. Under criticism, I might be somebody who, who, who throws it back, who, who denies, who defends, who, who, who doesn't take correction well, who wants to put the blame somewhere else, and it's never me. What's that, pride? It's one of my favorite questions, by the way, is to say to somebody, why are you so defensive? It's a very good question to ask to a defensive person. It's my pride that means um, I look down on somebody else. It's my pride that means I compare myself favorably. It's my pride that means I judge others. It's my pride that means I boast. It's my pride that, that makes me uh, more confident than I should be, an exaggerated self-confidence. Uh, self it's my pride that wants to take credit uh, for, for, for skills that God has given or, or take glory for achievements where glory only ever belongs to God. And some of that may be spoken. Uh, it may come out in words, usually does. What comes out is usually just a reflection of what's inside. It may stop before we've said proud things, but there's still pride that lurks in the heart, right? The Bible is really clear then. Let's get this. Pride is terribly destructive. Terribly, terribly destructive. Not just some little character flaw. Yeah, we're, we're done okay on the others, but there's pride. No, pride under, underlies everything else. It's terribly destructive. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction. So the married couple that are too proud to admit that they need help, the creeping separateness ends in disaster. A friendship crashes as one or other or both are too proud to face up to the way that they're hurting each other and deal with it and sort it out. A group implodes or goes nowhere. Why? Because the members of it are too proud to go anywhere particularly honest or vulnerable with each other. So trust levels remain shallow and superficial. A business suffers because the leader or the people of influence operate independently and they become immune and deaf to people challenging them. Pride wrecks relationship with others. It's actually, if you think about it, pride is actually a choice to exclude others as well as excluding God. It's essentially what it is. Jesus said, love God, love people. By focusing on self, pride erodes, destroys that capacity to, to do that, to love. 
So I'm essentially preoccupied with myself. I'm thinking about me, I'm talking about me, I'm always bringing conversations back to me. That's enough about you, let's talk about me. Others don't get much of a look in. The proud person might have friends, but chances are they'll be relatively superficial and there will be that element of how does this friendship benefit me when it's all about me. So pride is a form of anti-love, if you think about it. Not surprisingly, for those, therefore, who put themselves where God should be in their hearts, they're playing with fire. What does the verse say that we've just read? God opposes the proud. We stand as pride, our pride puts us in opposition to God himself. It's that serious. You want a, a bigger warning, Proverbs 15, the Lord will tear down the house of the, of the proud. The fruit of pride then, very, very bitter indeed. Being proud means op being opposition to God, bearing very bitter fruit, especially in the area of relationships, this, this kind of destructive poverty of relationship that pride entails. Pride, bad, very, very bad. Humility, good. Not surprisingly, humility does precisely the opposite. It aligns us with God. It leads to good fruit. Verse five again, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. It's fascinating if you do a word search of humility. Uh, or the word humble through the, through the scriptures. Um, encourage those kind of word searches, they're real fun. Uh, lots of references, not gonna go through many at all, but so many blessings accompany, uh, according to God's word, um, the fruit of humility, the fruit of being humble. They tend to be grouped around a number of things. For example, the link between humility and wisdom, all through the scriptures, many, many verses. I might have put one up, I can't remember. Um, yeah, Proverbs 11. With pride comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. They're linked. Teachability, ability to receive, right, I don't know it all, God, I need your wisdom. It's a humble posture. It invites joy, lots of verses about that, linked with humility. Uh, it, it, um, being humble positions us to receive the favor of God. And who, who doesn't want the favor of God? Pride puts us in opposition to God, no favor. Humility welcomes the favor of God. Humility is the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 22. Its wages are riches. Careful how we translate that, but you know, let's not downplay it. Riches, honor, life, life itself. The last verse that we just read together, uh, reward in time to God. God. God will elevate God in his time, lifts up those who are humble and so on. So back to my question about hunger. In this arena, is God speaking to us about that kind of change? Is God speaking to us at that very fundamental about how we might become a little less eye-focused, a little less proud in Bible language? and grow in humility, that rather slippery and subtle thing to define. I think we sort of know humility, or we sense it when we see it, but we're not quite sure we can put a definition on it. I'm not gonna try and define it too carefully. Uh, I, I think some things lose by over-defining. But be careful that we don't see it as negating self. It's not about putting ourselves down. Little quote from somebody. It's an accurate self-appraisal responsive to the opinion of others, not self-negation or denial of God-given strengths and abilities, but it is so far from self-promotion, it involves a grateful dependence on God. Somebody said a bit more catchily, not thinking less of myself, that's very ungodly, that's not right, is it? But perhaps thinking of myself less. That's quite neat, if you want a little bit of a definition. Romans 12, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has given each of you. John Ortberg links humility with this. He's, he describes it as a submitted willingness that involves healthy self-forgetfulness. He wrote this, we'll know when we've begun to make a little progress in humility, when we find that we get so enabled by the Holy Spirit 
to live in the moment that we cease to be so preoccupied with ourselves one way or another. When we're with others, we're truly with them, not wondering how they can be of benefit to us. Humility is the freedom to stop trying to be what we're not or pretending to be what we're not and accepting our appropriate smallness. In Martin Luther's words, humility is the decision to let God be God and be thankful that I'm not. Friends, this is one of the great battles, isn't it? Am I not talking, are you not recognizing this in your own heart or is it just me with my eye in the middle of Tim? This is one of the great battles of Christian discipleship. The extent to which it's about me and the extent to which it's not about me. And we tussle with that one. And we'll go on tussling with it. The encouragement today is keep tussling in God's grace. Keep growing. We need to identify some stuff and God needs to put his finger on some stuff and there'll be some things that he's challenging about, about not to condemn us, but because he loves us and wants us to live to the max. And that involves becoming less proud and becoming more humble. Dethroning me, enthroning Jesus. So is that a battle that we're engaged in? How are we doing? How do we grow in humility, hunger, Holy Spirit, hard work? I might want to add, by the way, habits. I guess that's part of... Um, part of hard work in a way, but just let's hear it for habits. Somebody said, actually, our lives are essentially just a collection of our habits. So what kind of habits are we forming? How do you think about the habits that you have? Habit is a, is a relatively permanent pattern of behavior, crucial for life. Something becomes habitual. We, we, we learn a bike, how to ride a bike to start with. It's not a habit, but then it is, and it becomes habitual. It's part of who we are. We don't think about it too much. It's not that different with some other qualities. But sin gets into our habits. It affects the way that we think and speak and and act and so on. And we can't override it just with hard work, with willpower. We might do just for a little bit, but not in the long run. My habits will always defeat my willpower. So my hope is not a stronger will. My hope is a new set of habits. And isn't that what following Jesus is about? Developing a new set of habits. Apparently in Alcoholics Anonymous, it goes, which is mirrored very similar to Christian discipleship, to, to biblical growing. Nobody uses willpower to stop drinking. It means surrendering my will, and all 12 steps, biblically founded actually, are to do with establishing new habits, we'd say by the grace of God. So when, when, when Jesus' followers started, uh, started studying scripture, started praying, started meeting together, started worshiping, started taking communion, They're replacing sinful habits with kingdom habits. We have to cultivate kingdom, good kingdom habits. So I've got five habits really, really briefly. I'm going to spend a minute on each roughly. Five habits for humility, just some of the practical outworkings. I I think, by the way, that if you try to be humble, you're putting your focus on the wrong place. I think it's a bit like my raspberries. I can't make raspberries grow. (laughs) I can't. I really can't. But I can do a few things in and around the raspberries without focusing on them that will help them to grow. And I think in this area, that's what it's about. Just a few habits for uh, growing in humility. Meditate on the greatness of God. I've got that first. The more I see God for who he is, the more I see myself in right relation to him. I think it was Theodore Roosevelt, one of the American presidents, some time ago. He had a habit every day. He would take anybody who was with him, his family or other people he'd been having meetings with at the end of the day. They'd walk out onto the White House lawn, certainly when there were no clouds. He would look up into the sky. It's a totally true story. 
And he would ponder the sky and invite those with him for a while to do that. And then he would say, <clears throat> right, friends, I feel small enough to go to bed. What a beautiful daily habit to contemplate the greatness of God, to look up into a starry sky. Actually, in many ways, perhaps this sermon would have been the more effective if all I'd done for 40 minutes was, was just explore and we'd, we'd enjoyed together something of the greatness of God. If we just read Isaiah 40 over and over again, have you not heard? Do you not know? I am the everlasting God. Lord of all creation, who never grows tired or weary. Meditating then, is that a daily habit? How, how might we uh, work that habit into daily life? To open ourselves to the goodness and the greatness of God. What will that do? It, it will enable us to find our position within that. It will take me off the throne and remember who is. So many of our insecurities, I think, come from having a far too small a view of God, far too little appreciation of his greatness. Habit two for humility, give thanks. Hill spoke about this so well last week, I'm, not, I'm only just going to mention it and not say any more. It's the antidote to pride, if you think about it. If I am thanking God for blessings that I have or for gifts or for things that have happened that have been good or I'm thanking people for things that they've done or who they are or for their encouragements. I cannot take credit for that. That can't be about me. Thankfulness and pride stand in complete opposition. And so, so to me, whilst getting less proud feels a bit nebulous, giving thanks, growing a habit of thankfulness, yeah, I can get my head around that. I can weave habits of thankfulness into my day as Hills was encouraging us so brilliantly. And what happens? They become habits. It becomes something that is habitual. I become a person of gratitude, with a heart of gratitude. That is a little more humble as a consequence and, and a little bit more like Jesus. Being ruthless with sin is my third habit. Being ruthless with sin. This is pretty unpopular, isn't it? But the Bible's pretty clear. Jesus says this. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Okay, it's Jewish exaggerated language. What's he saying though? Take sin seriously. Why? Because it's a massive blockage. It, it hurts you. It gets in the way of good relationship with God and with others. So why would we not want to deal with it ruthlessly when we see it? Why would we want to always be listening to the enemy who says, oh no, it's just a little thing. Don't worry about it too much. Be, be excused on that one. You're pretty good in this area, so don't worry too much about that area. Now I think developing habits of being ruthless actually with sin really matter, not in some sort of beating ourselves up kind of a way, legalistic kind of a way. We want to move away from that. But by the grace of God, let's, let's read our Bibles. And friends, as we become more sensitive to the Holy Spirit and hang out more with him, actually we become more sensitive to the presence of sin within us, do we not? Have you not, have you not been in, in times in your Christian journey, many of you to this point, where you, there have been moments when you've been sensitive and then for periods of time, as happens to me sadly, I, I, I get insensitive to, to, to things in my own heart. And whenever God sort of gives me a bit of a shake, the chances are it's always because I've not hung out with him in a more routine and regular way. And, and therefore I've become insensitive to things in my life, those kinds of blockages. We need, to be, we need others to help us, of course. We need gatherings and all that. But we need to hang out with the Lord, hang out with the Holy Spirit. Fourth uh, habit of humility, go low or go last. Couldn't decide, so I put them both. 
Um, Again, fairly obvious, but habits in this era. Jimmy Carter was another president of, um, of America, of course, and in retirement, he became known, uh, not that he wanted to become known, that's the point, actually. He worked a lot with a charity called Habitat for Humanity that builds um, homes for people in poor parts of the world. And he just joined this organization as a volunteer. He was one of their sort of um, sponsors or whatever. He couldn't, can't stop being the president of the United States, very well known. But story after story after story is told of Jimmy Carter on these projects just mucking in alongside everybody else, just taking his place at the end of the line for food, uh, not sharing, you know, share, sharing everybody else's bathroom and living in the same dormitory as everybody else. And time and time again, people commented, there's extraordinary humility at work here. Here's somebody who's not going to use his position as he could have done, isn't going to attract limelight, just getting on with stuff, going low, taking the lower spot, going last, taking the smaller piece of cake, giving somebody else the better seat, not self-promoting. Take, playing second fiddle. I love that phrase. Uh, my dad might have been the most humble person that I know. And, um, oh dear, sorry. <laughs> uh, at his Thanksgiving um, last year, I, uh, he, he did actually play second violin as it happened in the orchestra. So I, so I, I used a story, Leonard Bernstein, uh, composer, conductor, um, was asked, what's the most, some of you heard this story, I say it at weddings too, what's the most difficult instrument to play? Quick as a flash, he said, second fiddle. He said, I can find loads of people to play first violin, first trombone, first trumpet, whatever. Very rarely does somebody want to play second fiddle. But without somebody playing second fiddle, there can be no harmony. It's a very profound thing that he said. Somebody who goes low, who, who allows others, who promotes others, who said, it's not denying gifts and talents and achievements and, and making the most of those, but it's being even more excited about somebody else's gifts and talents and wanting to see them fly and be encouraged. <clears throat> Last habit uh, for humility. It's actually the biggest, but I'll give it no more than my minute. <clears throat> serve. Serve, 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 serve. I don't think we model Jesus any more accurately than when we are engaged in serving. After all, the one who said, I came, the whole point in coming was not to be served, he could have been, he's God in flesh, but to serve. And all those ways that we're familiar with in which that worked itself out, washing feet and healing and going about and touching people and just serving, 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 because to serve is to love, to serve is to give, to serve is to focus on the other and not promote self. Philippians 2. You know those verses, um, they're on the screen, I'm not, not going to read them, but, but Jesus leaving the glory of heaven to the muckiness of earth in humility, taking the form of what? A servant. Not despite being God, by the way, but because he was God. Not God in disguise in that way. It's serving otherliness is at the heart of God. So he comes as a servant, of course he does. Uh, Richard Foster, <clears throat> Spiritual Disciplines. Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh, pride, like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service. We don't really like it because we're not very otherly. But it screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered, what my friends call uh, calls serving in the limelight. <laughs> if we stoutly refuse to give in to this lust of the flesh, actually we crucify it. 
And every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify a little bit more pride. See, the way to life is through death, isn't it? That's the other thing that Jesus modeled. The pathway to life is through death. Tonight, some people are going to go through the pathway of being uh, drenched here. One of the many bits of rich symbolism is to say the path to life, to new life, is through death. So, friends, are we cultivating habits of, of daily dying, a thousand little deaths, and to serve, to give away stuff to others in unseen ways? most profoundly grows us. Serving in the, yeah, this church family, what does that look like? It might getting your knees dirty and getting on the floor in kids' church and being sort of spat on or, you know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or putting out the chairs or doing the coffee. I'm sure there's some more visible role, roles too, but uh, are we too big for some of those? Have we, have we grown too big for little roles? Does that sound like Jesus? I don't think so. He, he wrapped a towel around his waist, got on his feet and washed camel dung off feet. At work, what does that look like for you? Your neighbours, what does that look like for you? The serving bit. And, and do you tell them you've, you've cleared their drive or you've put their bins out or, or you've washed up the coffee mugs or something at work? But you don't tell anybody, do you? I hope not. Serving, little acts of service. They're, they're habits. It's pra- very practical. Need to stop. Jesus is building his body. Body building. We're up for that, aren't we? I, I pray that we are. I pray that we're not stuck. I pray that we don't pay lip service to the idea of building and growing and changing, but actually we like hearing about it more than doing it. This sermon is useless uh, unless we're responding, isn't it? Anything that we do, any message we hear from the Lord, unless we're, we're engaging with it and allowing God to work that into us, it, it, it's just information. We're after transformation. I know that we are, so let's keep growing. Jesus is building his body. He's doing it. The Holy Spirit is doing it, but we need to cooperate. And for that, we need to be hungry. We have to be hungry. God, more hunger, please. It's my biggest prayer, by the way. The best thing you can pray for me in Hills is more hunger for God. For more of the Holy Spirit. Without him, we're sunk. And for a greater willingness to work hard, for hard work to develop healthy habits. For our own sake, absolutely. For the sake of our own relationship with with Jesus, for our own growth with him, absolutely. But essentially for for, for the sake of the world. For the sake of those around us who are hurting and broken, and perhaps never more so than now, and that need a body of Christ that begins to look a bit more like the body of Christ. Amen.